The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is a production of the Society of Economic Geologists. Our sponsor, Anglo-American, is a leading mining company with a diverse global portfolio, driven by its purpose of reimagining mining to improve people's lives. It provides many essential, future-enabling metals and minerals for a cleaner, greener, more sustainable world. Their sponsorship supports the podcast and SEG. I'm Ann Thompson, a partner in PetroScience Consultants, and I'm your host for this episode. In the last two episodes, we considered core scanning technologies for exploration and mining development and how to cope with the heavy, dense data produced. This week, we're digging deep into lithium. Where do we find it? What makes a good exploration target? From brines to clays to pegmatites, this is all about the earth science, important in understanding lithium as a commodity. Our exploration starts with brines, and we turn to Becky Paisley from WSP to find out more about the diverse and intriguing variety of fluids that contain lithium. What are the fundamentals of Becky Paisley? Where, who are you now, and how did you come to Vancouver? This is a very philosophical question to start with. I, yes, I currently live in Vancouver, but as the accent says, I'm from the UK originally. I grew up just outside of London, did an undergrad in earth sciences, really liked volcanoes as a kid, and yeah, just enjoyed the sciences. And, and so I was like, well, I like the sciences and I like the earth, so let's try this whole earth sciences lark and see what this is about. And continue to enjoy researching and studying enough to do a PhD after my undergrad. So I went from Oxford over to Montreal to McGill University for four and a half, five years, doing a PhD in, in volcanology, actually. I was studying Chilean volcanoes and understanding how they, they erupt. So I was in Canada until uh, the end of 2018 and then went back to the UK because I, I felt like it was time to go home and uh, did a, a post-PhD recovery, lots of little side gigs for a few months and then joined a company called Cornish Lithium, who are a UK mineral exploration R&D company based out in Cornwall, looking for lithium, as the name suggests. And I ended up being with them for just over three years and got to get stuck into a bunch of different work, really trying to understand lithium brines in particular, geothermal brines, and then also how do you get lithium out of brine? Because it's no good finding the brine if you can't actually make lithium from it. So worked with a bunch of different companies on that and then found myself back in Canada at the beginning of 2023. And I currently work for WSP, WSP Canada Inc. It's a massive multinational firm, 68,000 people across the globe. And we support mining companies across the mining circle. So I work on everything from early stage exploration for lithium, copper, gold, you know, all kinds of commodities all the way through to remediation, closure, and yeah, rehabilitation of mines, particularly across Canada and the US. Right. It's a little bit of a change in size and scale, numbers of employees from Cornish Lithium to WSP. Yeah. You know, 65 to 68,000 is a big jump. You know, it's a consultant 
consulting firm versus an exploration firm, and they all have different approaches to things. But ultimately, it's it's all about getting science done the best way possible and trying to facilitate production of commodities out of the ground. Right. So can we talk about what makes lithium interesting or what is lithium as an element and how it moves around in our Earth systems? I think most of us probably know that it's relatively light, but I'm not sure we know much more than that. Yeah, lithium, lithiums, it's an interesting element because I think it, it's been less studied than other elements. It's one of the lightest elements in the periodic table, as you mentioned, sits right in that top left-hand corner. And, and ultimately, everything that we study as, as geologists and then also the engineers trying to process lithium is ultimately down to its size and its charge. And that's kind of what I've taken away working with that element in particular for a few years now is it's just everything is related to how weird it is because it's the size, it's charge, it's electric potential. And that is the controlling feature all the way through finding these deposits and then getting the lithium into a solution that you can then turn it into a compound and then how it works in batteries. But it's still a metal. But it's still a metal. Yeah. One of those group one metals. Well, anyone who's done those experiments in school when you drop, you know, like little pure sodium or potassium or lithium into water and you watch it, bang, then, you know, Bang. Yeah. The the fun stuff. The fun stuff. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. So that means it's relatively light. So what, what causes it to move around? How's it distributed? How's it distributed? Well, I believe the crustal abundance is about 35 ppm. So if you, you know, stuck the world in a blender and took a homogenous sample, that's roughly how much it would be. That's not enough. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, so as as geologists looking for mines, we need to find something that's hundreds, thousands of times more enriched. And the geological processes that that control its behavior, again, are really dependent on that size and charge. And lithium sources, whether it be hard rock kind of spodumene or a, a clay or all these brines, often have that volcanic origin. And that's because the processes during the evolution of magmas, it, it helps to concentrate that lithium. Lithium doesn't really like going into to minerals, it, particularly, you know, your standard rock forming minerals. It goes into plagiar clays a little bit, but for the most part, it, it's incompatible. So as your magmas evolve and you get more felsic, those types of magmas tend to have higher levels of lithium to begin with. But in terms of brines, ultimately, for the most part, they've they've formed from the alteration of uh, a rock that had lithium enriched in it to begin with. So as we said, lithium doesn't really like to be in a mineral. So it's kind of the last thing that goes into a mineral. And then ultimately, you know, water-rock interaction, add some heat, some pressure, maybe a little bit of time. And you're going to start breaking down minerals. And lithium is like, oh, you know what? I'm quite happy in a liquid. I'm quite happy in a water. Thank you very much. And you get these lithium complexes forming. And so that's how you start to enrich your lithium back into waters that we can then target through different forms of exploration. So tell me about the brines in Cornwall. Yeah, the European brines, like those found in Cornwall, are geothermal brines for the most part. So nodal brines create equal, I would argue there's, you know, three major quote unquote categories of brines. You have your solar brines, which the ones that we all know and love in the, the lithium industry. You know, South American predominantly salt flats brines underneath. We've been producing lithium from those for a while. They're very salty, they're quite cold, and they sit in salt layers. Then you've got your oil-filled brines. These are the ones that, as the name suggests, are largely found in brines within old oil fields, either oil fields that have had 
the oil extracted and now they can be repurposed or they're in fields where they weren't really economic to begin with, with respect to oil, but you always have brines floating in those. And so you have lithium enriched in them. And then Cornish lithium, they're geothermal brines. So they're quite unique compared to other geothermal brines because not all geothermal brines are created equal. But yeah, in Cornwall, you've got a granite body that is slowly releasing some heat thanks to radioactive decay that heats up the water. Hot water plus rocks equals water-rock interaction. You're going to start leaching out elements. So yeah, you see a lot of kind of warm geothermal waters in that area and quite a considerable amount of lithium in some of those brines. Catherine Goodenough said in a recent talk for SEG on webinar, I used to say there was lithium in every country in the world except the Netherlands. And then I discovered there was lithium in their oil field brine. So yeah, so depending on what your source is, it is everywhere. Yeah, It is everywhere. I mean, lithium's in seawater. And I know people have been looking at lithium production from seawater. And this goes back to the old economic question. Right. Lithium in seawater is 0.2 ppm. So the lithium reservoir of the ocean is enormous. Right. But if you wanted to process that much water... It's not going to be economic. And so you'll see a lot of these brines, a lot of these clays, even, you know, hard rock projects. There's lithium everywhere, but is it economic? And as we see the price fluctuating hugely with lithium in particular, that is it economic question can change day by day. Your brine may be economic this year, but it may not be economic next year. Okay. So we have all these different kinds of brines. I think what we know from processing in general is that it's easy to get things into solution, but that doesn't mean that we have the process to get it out of solution into the form that we need it to use. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting you you mentioned the whole getting it into liquid and I'm going to completely simplify metallurgy here, but that's what mining is, isn't it? We take a rock and we turn that rock into a liquid and then we turn that liquid into something that we find useful. But with brines, that first step has been done by the earth. It's already taken our rocks and put it into something liquid and now we've got to figure it out. And the conventional method at the moment for producing lithium from brines is evaporation ponds. We've been doing it for decades. You bring your water to the surface, you put them in a series of ponds over the course of about 18 months or so. You get about 50% recovery as you evaporate your little water molecules away and slowly precipitate out other salts. And then once it's concentrated enough, you put it into a a final kind of cleaning step and produce your lithium carbonate or your lithium hydroxide. And that is the established technology. In the last decade or so, there has been a huge amount of R&D put into direct lithium extraction or DLE technologies. I'd say the key distinguisher between that process and evaporation process is the evaporation process is all about how do I get rid of absolutely everything in my brine except the lithium, whereas direct lithium extraction is the exact opposite. I want to directly extract the lithium and I don't want to touch anything else. And so those processes require technologies that allow you to do that. And that goes back to that size and charge discussion that we had is lithium has got one charge, it's plus one, and it's small. So how do I separate this tiny small thing from everything else in that water? So how do you? (laughs) (laughs) I think for the the most part, there's several technologies and each process is different for different types of brines as we spoke about. But ultimately, for the most part, you have a media of some form, a bead. And on that bead, you have a coating of a material that has an affinity for lithium. This can be adsorption type technologies, where you're trying to fit lithium and lithium chloride into little spaces at the atomic scale. It can be ion exchange where you're trying to literally exchange your ions. So you have little hydrogen ions on your media. They get exchanged with the lithium and the lithium sticks. You can also use solvents, some exploration and R&D into 
to solvents and using that as well. But ultimately, it's about having a media that lithium likes to sit onto. So when your water passes through a column or a stir tank reactor or anything that has this media, the lithium sticks to that and everything else passes through. And that's your first stage of separation. As we know with engineering and science, everything is on a spectrum. It's not 100% effective. You don't get 100% of your lithium and 0% of everything else. So what can I control of the brine as it comes into my plant? I can control the pH. I can control the temperature. I can control the pressure. And I can kind of control the chemistry a little bit if I want. And I can kind of filter it a little bit with membranes. So membrane technologies are used everywhere from your water treatment plant in your city to your Brita filtering your fridge. It separates things based on its size and its charge. So big things won't go through like calcium, small things like lithium can go through. So right. you've passed your brine through these columns with your DLE. You've then washed that media with either water or, or an acid, depending again on the type of technology that you're using. And now you have a solution that has a higher concentration of lithium with respect to the other elements than you had before. And now I need to take that from a solution to a concentration where I can start precipitating out the salts, the lithium salts that I'm interested in. And again, those technologies are used widely in a whole host of different processes for different things. And particularly the evaporation and concentration step is already used for lithium processing from salars. Because ultimately we are taking a brine and we are turning it into a salt at the end. So still, a best case, a multi-step procedure. Yeah. Right. As as with everything. So can we compare and contrast a little bit the solar brine environment with other geothermals? Presumably, there are people are looking at direct extraction from the brines in the solar environment as well, because we want water to be returned to that system where there's already such demand and need for water. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I think from my experience and understanding, I, I do work the brine company in Argentina and we're looking at direct lithium extraction and that is the kind of the way forward in in South America to to be perfectly honest the, the Chile and government in particular have made it really clear that they don't really want evaporation ponds trying to get permitting for an evaporation pond in the future it will be difficult mainly on the ESG grounds from my understanding right. people don't want to be losing water in a place that already has no water you know you can see them from space they're not small things so yes i think you will see that the DLA technology building into that space and and we see it already with pilot plants being in production for the last few years lake resources has has done a really good job with lila for example live Ent have had dle type technology running in there for a while so it is happening and it's it's really a matter of time before it becomes the new norm i'd say so how much lithium do I need in my brine? I mean, it's more than 35 ppm. PPM. <laughs> Again, it, it really depends on everything else in the brine. Because if you have a very salty brine that's got a high lithium, but then also has too many other contaminants that it's too hard to process, then that's not as good as having a brine that's got a slightly lower concentration of lithium, but it's easier to clean. So this is a question for the the economics. And the engineers out there is, it's it's, uh, pulling lots of different levers and seeing within your process plant preparation and planning. And well, if I can remove X amount of calcium before it goes into the filter, then the recovery is improved by 10%. And then I get out something that's cost me a fraction of doing it another way. Generally speaking, with a lot of the technologies out there, particularly adsorption-based technologies, it does help to have north of 200 ppm, I'd say. At least you know that the media will be able to recover it and, and won't be breaking down. But if you have a brine that comes out of the ground at 100, but you put it through a reverse osmosis process, 
which is a form of concentration, then you can double that lithium to from 100 to 200. And if that works for the economics, then that could still be a viable project. Um, so say I'm an exploration geologist and I have a vial of a brine that I found somewhere in the world. Okay. I've found this brine. That, now what do I do? Do I, I send it to a lab to get a full chemical analysis? And then what I do, is there somebody I can send it to to say, is this even feasible? First of all, you need to know how much lithium is in the ground. So what is the quality okay. and then what is the quantity? Right. So you've done your, your initial step. You've got your quality. You've taken your little vial and you've sent it to a, a lab and they've told you that you've got 200, 250 ppm lithium and you're over the moon. Yay! <laughs> yeah. And it on the price. Um, and <laughs> I think you can't just drill one well and say, oh, I've hit I've hit a gold mine uh, or lithium mine. Right. It's perfect. You know, we, we need to get an idea for how much water is in the grounds. So that needs to be happening in parallel to, can I get the lithium out of this? And that second step involves working with DLE companies to understand which technology works best for your type of brine and which type of technology works best is, goes back to it's about everything else that's in that brine as well. So you may find that a DLE technology like an iron exchange technology works really well or works slightly better for your brine that has a slightly lower TDS, total dissolved solids, or your adsorption technology works slightly better for your brine that has a really high TDS. So it's the sum of everything that's in the water. Right. It's right. it's exactly what it says on the tin. Nearly all the technologies out there will work with every kind of brine. And, and then it ultimately comes down to that economics question is what works best. And that's where the R&D comes into play a little. And then it's a case of what is the timescale for that technology to get to commercial production? Right. We work in an environment at the moment where direct lithium extraction technologies are still in that R&D phase. It's it's not an off-the-shelf product that you can just pick up. So, yeah. So, you know, can people build these plants tomorrow for you? More and more companies can, and they're very, getting very close to it. But, you know, it really needs another a couple of years before you see it being the norm. We're on the cusp of successful pilots happening, you know, literally in the, the space of the last two years or so, I'd say you've had more than one company have real success with an operating pilot plant. And so the next step is taking those pilot plants and, and making them slightly larger. The great thing about the pilot to kind of demo to commercial scale within lithium brines, I'd say, is the scale up is a lot smaller than you would have for a demo plant of a mine. Often you're only scaling up maybe five to 10 times between your pilot and your demo rather than 100 times just because of flow rates. And a lot of these systems are built as modular systems. So again, you're, you're de-risking that process by having a modular system. If, if I need to double my flow rate, I just buy another system. Right. One of the many conundrums I'd say happening within the lithium industry at the moment is we're in desperate need for more lithium in the long term. But in the short term, we have oversupply that's flooded the market because the price was $80,000 a ton. And now everyone has too much lithium. And so no one's buying it. So the price has dropped. And then we haven't even spoken about the back end. We are living in a world where battery manufacturers don't have a standard lithium compound that they want. Everyone right. wants something slightly different. And so you have a moving target at the back end of your flow sheet, which is very rare for a lot of metals. And so people are looking at battery grade hydroxide, battery grade carbonate, battery grade phosphate. But what is battery grade? And so with every change 
in that cycle has an impact both down the road to the car manufacturers and how they're selling the cars and what type of cars they're producing, but also upstream way down to the, the right. initial producers. And you see that now in the a lot of the signing of takeoff agreements that are specific. People are signing to Ford. People are signing to General Motors because that company is like, well, I know what I want. So you're going to make what I want. And then at least that flow sheet for that particular company can be fixed because they know exactly what grade they need to be hitting in terms of all of the other elements that are in your lithium battery grade material. But also what you talk about in terms of all the changes is influencing our ability to recycle because we aren't getting to a point of having a standard battery. And it certainly used to be the case that it would take more energy to recycle a battery than it is to get the lithium out of the ground. So why would you even bother? You are starting to see (laughs) that change. So yeah, when you think about the the whole chain of going from initial exploration, 10 years minimum, let's be honest, it's probably about 15 years, 20 years to get that mine in production. And then you've got the processing and then you've got the design of the vehicle. Like It's not a flexible line. No, we can hope that a couple of these things like the design is happening simultaneous to us finding more resource and producing. <laughs> yeah. But you know, if they change their battery compound, it's an interesting market. I'm a geoscientist by training and I look at this and you see all of this change and uncertainty and and it is all down to the fact that we're trying to make a car with a battery that was only commercialized 30 years ago. The speed at which these things are changing is phenomenally fast. And you will continue to see improvements throughout that chain, for sure, because we have done it with ICEs. We've done it with combustion vehicles. We've had 150 years of combustion design. So I would say give it 100 years. We probably don't have 100 years to fix this problem. But that change is coming and the supply chain will have to figure itself out what that final product looks like will depend on a lot of macro factors, not just the size and charge of lithium, but uh, it will balance itself out eventually. The economics are pushing the lithium industry in such a way that no other metal is is pushed. Like, you know, lithium was used for greases and and things like that before, but its demand was it was so small and now you've shifted the entire industry. And so people have suddenly had to figure out where you find lithium yeah. because we haven't needed to worry about where you find lithium before. You just mined it wherever you found it. Right. And the, the amounts were fine and all that. Yeah, and the amounts were yeah. fine for what and- we needed. And we didn't have all these countries who are suddenly panicking about their own individual supply. Yeah. And so now everyone's like, oh, oh, I need lithium. Where do I find lithium? I need a mineral systems approach. I need a geologist. Next up, Bob Lennon, Chief Geologist Lithium for Cobalt. Bob spent decades in pegmatite research and through his work with Cobalt is now pursuing exploration concepts from the large-scale tectonic processes to the regional environment to aid in the discovery of new lithium pegmatites. So let's talk about pegmatites. Sure, sure. (laughs) Let's talk about lithium. Hi, Anne. Thanks for inviting me. My name's Bob Lennon. I'm the former Hotter Chair in Economic Geology at the University of Western Ontario. And I've been working in pegmatites for about 35 years. I I originally did my PhD on granite-related pegmatite, including pegmatite-hosted deposits in Thailand. That's where I started working on uh, pegmatites. These were tin tungsten pegmatites, not lithium ones. And I've been working on both field aspects, theoretical aspects, and and experimental aspects of pegmatites since that time. I retired from the University of Western Ontario about two years ago now, and an opportunity to join Cobalt Metals came up. 
And I took advantage of that opportunity. Cobalt is a different kind of company. We're up to about 150 or so people now, but why it's different is, is there's about an equal amount of geoscientists, both geologists and geophysicists, data scientists, and computer programmers. Right. So we really have this team approach where there's different perspectives and geologists closely work with, with data scientists to come up with new hypotheses, test those hypotheses, et cetera. So the, the way the company works is a little bit, uh, well, not a little bit, it's, it's very different from the way most companies work. Uh, we, don't, we don't contract out data science, we do data science and we integrate data science uh, very much so in our exploration plans. So that's what I, I do now. I'm the chief geologist for lithium for cobalt metals. Right. Excellent. So a whole new way of looking at lithium globally for you to be working in that environment. Yeah. So when I joined Cobalt, one of the first things that we did was I actually started working on very fundamental concepts. And I've presented this a couple of times at conferences. People can look up things if they're interested. Uh, just what is the lithium cycle? In my view, there was no good paper out in the lithium cycle. What's controlling lithium concentrations in the crust? What happens when you subduct crust into the mantle? What's the source of lithium in the mantle? How does it partition into melts? All these things. So I started off very, very basically looking at what is the lithium, global lithium cycle? I don't get into the core. It's just the upper mantle to the right. crust and to the ocean. How does lithium behave in that system? And then to go from that, once you have that understanding, now you can start building mineral systems models. And so each type of deposit really will have its own mineral system, but a lot of them are all interrelated. So after building a lithium cycle model, I started building mineral systems models, particularly for pegmatites. And we believe that pegmatites are the key to the present, but they're also the key to the future. So there's an old saying in gold, that saying is great is king, and that applies to lithium as well. So lithium pegmatites have been produced well, since before the 1950s, but they've been in production for a long time. And the reason is because they're high grade. And when the, right. when the price goes down, the high grade deposits tend to survive economic downturns better than low grade deposits. So roughly a little over half of the current production of lithium comes from pegmatites, pre predominantly from spodumene. There are new types of deposits that may affect the global supply of lithium, but they're a lot lower grade. So they're more at risk to downturns in global lithium prices. It's interesting because we could talk about the whole market and the political part of it as well, because not every country has lithium pegmatites in it, most likely, right? Correct, so, yeah. So, it's a, <laughs> so there is lithium and you go to the lithium cycle, there is lithium everywhere. So thinking about that distribution globally, just of pegmatites, my impression is that our understanding of that has changed markedly in the last few years, just with the exploration and the effort. And so it, it all of a sudden, it looks like the map has changed from a handful of occurrences well known to things scattered in a lot of different places. Is that a fair? Yeah, well, I'd say there's two things that have happened with the, the pegmatite exploration. First is the low hanging fruit. And virtually every lithium pegmatite that's in production today was originally a tin prospect. In, in Canada, for those of you that uh, are aware of the uh, Geological Association of Canada, Duncan Derry Metal, Duncan Derry was an explorationist. And in the 1940s, he discovered Tanko. It was discovered as a 
tin pegmatite. And then it later became uh, a lithium pegmatite as well as a tantalum pegmatite. Similarly, green bushes in Australia, which is the world's second largest pegmatite deposit and the world's largest producer, green bushes was originally a tin pegmatite. That's how it was found. And then later, it's become a, a lithium pegmatite. The largest pegmatite in the world is Monono in the, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And that was originally mined as a tin and tantalum pegmatite back in the 1980s. The tin and, and tantalum were alluvial and they mined down to where the alluvium stopped. And, and now it's pegmatite is beneath that and it's all lithium pegmatite. So the low hanging fruit has been go look at where tin pegmatites have been described uh, in, in the past and, and reevaluate those. And then there's a whole another class of, of pegmatites that aren't particularly tin rich that remain to be discovered. And prior to lithium becoming an important commodity, they were studied by uh, a relatively small number of people who are interested primarily in mineralogy because the crystals are fascinating, how pegmatites form is fascinating. And of course, that's all changed now. And so there's much more of a focus on the economics of pegmatite deposits and how they form and, and where specifically are lithium pegmatites as opposed to barren pegmatites, etc. Right. Yeah. So can we talk about that? How do pegmatites form? And why would one be lithium enriched versus another? So fundamentally, lithium pegmatites, I consider them to be orogenic deposits. So you have collision zones uh, where two continents or microcontinents are, are colliding. When microcontinents collide, we have continent collisions producing granitic melts. And typically, these are at the very end stages of those orogeny or, or collisions where there's a tectonic relaxation. So pegmatites invariably are thin to late tectonic. The crust melts. And when the crust melts, material that was originally rich in micas is the material that's rich in lithium. So the partial melting then of this crustal material that's rich in mica produces granitic melts that contain high concentrations of lithium. And then there's two models, and then we recently published a paper, a third model, the two models where you have anatectic melts, and if you have a really, really small degree of partial melting, you'll produce melts that are enriched in incompatible elements, which includes lithium. Right. The other model is a fractional crystallization model, where if you produce a melt, then you undergo extreme fractional crystallization, then you'll have enrichment in incompatible elements like lithium. And we don't think that either of those are realistic for a variety of reasons. And we think that in reality, what's happening is a repetitive process where you melt crustal material, you produce a granite, you can fractionally crystallize that granite to a certain degree. It doesn't have to be extreme. That granite is now crystallized and now you melt it again. When you melt the, the granite again, first what you're going to melt is the micas plus the quartz and the feldspar. So you're going to produce an enriched melt from what was a previously crystallized granite. So you can undergo then that process of crystallizing a granite, then remelting the granite and crystallizing a granite. And this sort of distillation style of mineralization then can produce lithium-rich melt. So it's not necessarily a straight fractional crystallization. It's a multiple melting, multiple crystallization episode. And one of the pieces of evidence that backs this up is when you go on the belt scale and you look at ages of pegmatites, you'll see that there's 
you know, 20 million years, 40 million years of age differences between the pegmat sites. Well, 40 million years is well beyond the length of time it took to make the Himalayas. So it's obviously melt forming events are extended. So there is multiple melting and multiple intrusion events in these systems. Right. So it's an inference by the ages and the observations in the belts that allows you to create that model. There's no way to know that any particular granite actually was melted twice and recrystallized. Correct. We're still working on whether there's a way of actually determining that, but it's a really difficult question. I think one of the reasons why we like this model is I'm not a a mineral physicist. Uh, There are people that are much better in that than than I am. But if you look at the solubility of spodumene in a melt, and there's some people that have done experimental work on this, you need to have on the order of 5,000 to 10,000 ppm lithium in a melt in order to stabilize spodumene. So then you can do Raleigh fractionation models and you say, well, how much how much fractionation do I need to attain 10,000 ppm? Well, it turns out you need like 99% fractional crystallization. So you can start asking the question, is 99% fractional crystallization reasonable? Can we really get that much fractional crystallization? At what point do magmas freeze? It's the same way on the anatectic side. You can't have 0.001% melting. It's like what most people would say, you probably need about 5% melting in order to extract that melt from the host rock. So there, there are physical limits on how small of a partial melt you can have and how much of a fractional crystallized melt you can have. And having multiple stages gets around that problem because now you don't have to have 99% fractional crystallization, which I think is physically unreasonable. Right, right. I mean, who's going to argue with you? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people <laughs> argue with me, but that's fine. It's a hypothesis, right? Yeah, exactly. One, one of the things I strongly believe in is if, if I make statements and people get so upset by them and they prove me wrong, that's how science advances. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how we figure things out because somebody said something and somebody doesn't like right. it. So they come up with a, a new hypothesis and test that new hypothesis. So it, absolutely. So we've talked about the broader scale tectonic environment, but help me understand exactly how the, the, the actual pegmatite on that scale forms. And, and the size of these crystals. And like, at what time period is that over? How fast do these crystals grow? And what space? How has it happened? It's amazing. So it's sort of a confluence of a couple of things. Pegmatites are flux-rich melts. So fluxes are things that lower melting temperature. Water lowers melting temperatures. Fluorine, boron, lower melting temperatures. But they don't just lower the melting temperatures. They decrease the viscosity. So if you have flux-rich melts, the viscosity is lower. When you lower the viscosity, you increase diffusivity. So in order to get large crystals, you need to have fast diffusivity so that as a crystal starts growing, there has to be nutrients that are arriving at the melt crystal interface so that it can continue to grow. If the viscosity is too high, then the diffusivity is too slow and it's harder to grow really, really large crystals. So it turns out that pegmatites are at this sort of physical condition where they're flux rich, the diffusivity is high, and when they start to grow, they grow really, really quickly. And so pegmatites are not formed by slow crystal growth. They're actually formed by rapid crystal growth. And many of the textures that we see in pegmatites are indicative of rapid crystal growth. For instance, a classic texture is quartz, K-feldspar, graphic intergrowths. Those graphic intergrowths are classic disequilibrium rapid crystal growth. We get skeletal growth. 
you'll have things like tourmalines with hollow cores. All of these things indicate very rapid crystal growth. So pegmatites form quite quickly. And they have to, because the dikes, again, this is the physics of, of magma, because the dikes are relatively thin, I mean, a big pegmatite dike is 100 meters thick. But okay. still, at, even at 100 meters, it's, you have to now start looking at what's the conductive heat loss to the wall rock. So pegmatites cool relatively quickly. As they cool relatively quickly, they'll undercool. And then at a certain degree of undercooling, they'll start to nucleate. But they don't nucleate really, really fine crystals. In some cases, that's why you get an aplite. They will nucleate crystals that will continue to grow to be very, very large. Okay. That helps a lot. I think back in the day, weren't we taught that big crystals took a long time to grow? Yeah, but it's pretty accepted that that, that was wrong. No, yep. they actually form quite quickly. And pegmatite textures are the result of rapid crystal growth. Right. Are there zoning in those crystals? Absolutely. Yeah. There can be extreme zoning in those crystals. So you can look at something and people do. For instance, the rubidium content in a K-feldspar. So the, the core of the K-feldspar or the base of the K-feldspar may be quite poor in rubidium. But when you grow a, a K-feldspar crystal that's two meters long, by the time you get to the tip of it, that, that K-feldspar, <laughs> it'll be in the weight percent levels of rubidium. So you're, you're going from, right. say, 100 ppm to, to 10,000 ppm over the growth of that crystal. I think in many cases, when, we, when we're seeing crystal crystal zoning, it's not the fluid chemistry change that, you know, a new fluid came in and then another fluid came in. It's like, no, it's it's crystal growth. And it has a lot to do with the rate of crystal growth versus the rate of diffusion of different elements. Right. Fascinating. Where are we in terms of understanding lithium pegmatites then? We've figured the tectonic environment out. We've talked about the smaller scale. What else do I need to know if I'm maybe I'm going to explore for a lithium pegmatite? To me, one of the fascinating aspects that has received very little academic scrutiny is there are in my view, I think there are two kinds of pegmatites. So the classic pegmatite that everybody thinks of is a zoned pegmatite. And Tanko is the classic example. Tanko's had more papers written on that than any other pegmatite in the world. You go from a, a wall zone, a border zone, wall zone, intermediate zone, core zone. And there's the interpretation is an inward crystallization of a magma. But many of the world's pegmatites, including many of the Australian examples, are poorly zoned pegmatites. They're either unzoned or they're poorly zoned. And these are you know, massive spodumene dikes, spodumene quartz albite uh, mica dikes. And the lack of zoning in those is much less well understood. But from an economic standpoint, if I have a zone pegmatite, I can only mine the portion of the pegmatite that contains the spodumene. Whereas if I have an unzoned pegmatite, I'm mining the whole dike and it's all ore. And right. the reasons why we get unzoned pegmatite versus zone pegmatite is, uh, I think, one of the outstanding questions that, that's quite interesting because from an economic standpoint, I prefer to find the unzoned ones, not the zoned ones, even though the zoned ones scientifically are maybe more interesting economically, they're less interesting. Having said that, Greenbushes is a zone pegmatite and Monono is also a zone pegmatite. So there's obviously two of the great pegmatites in the world for lithium are, are zone pegmatites. So examples of unzoned ones that are currently being exploited in the world? Uh, Pilgungura is, what is it now, somewhere around 300 million tons. It's, it's a huge pegmatite in, in Australia. A lot of the Australian ones are poorly zoned to unzoned. Greenbushes is kind of the exception. Uh, Mount Caitlin's another example. 
right. to my knowledge, the pegmatites in South Carolina are pretty much on zone pegmatites. In the old literature, they used to be called uh, spodumene albite type pegmatites. And there are a lot of those around. And the origin of those pegmatites has received a lot less scientific study. So they're less well understood. Yeah, interesting. So we need to work on that one. We need to yeah. work on that one. Yeah. So question if I'm exploring for a lithium pegmatite, it's my impression that it's like, go out and, and walk. So can we do better than that? <laughs> is cobalt doing better than that? I hope so. Well, the, certainly the hope is that, that we think we can, we can do better than that. So in terms of the application of data science to, to mineral exploration, there's not only cobalt, there's a number of companies around the world using various satellite data, trying to interpret uh, where pegmatites are based on remote sensing. Right. It turns out that spodumene is a very difficult mineral to identify by remote sensing. There's no clear spodumene signal. So there's that aspect from the broadest scale looking at where to identify pegmatites. One of the challenges with pegmatites is geophysically they're negatives, right? So they're not conductive. No, right. They're not magnetic, right? For pegmatites, geophysics is challenging. We use geophysics certainly to get structure and overall geology, but it's hard to identify a pegmatite based on most uh, geophysical techniques. Mineral chemistry is something that's widely used in the industry and actually kind of serendipitously, LIBS started being used uh, about a decade ago while lithium exploration was just getting underway. And LIBS uh, stands for Laser Induced Breakdown Spectroscopy. Uh, LIBS is on the Mars Rose rover, and it's, it's one of the techniques that's used by NASA to analyze rocks on Mars. And LIBS is one of the few techniques, and it's really the only option in, in exploration. If you want a, a field portable technique. LIBS is the only technique that you can analyze for lithium in the field. So right. X-rays, XRF, anything to do with X-rays, the lithium is just too light and can't analyze lithium by an electron microprobe. The only techniques really to analyze lithium is either by LIBS or by taking a sample and then analyzing it by uh, ICP, induced coupled plasma mass spectrometry. Yeah. So that's also a challenge. So you have the LIBS and you have negative geophysics response. I mean, that, that can still be something useful depending on what scale you're doing your geophysics at. Right. Absolutely. But it's, it's more, you know, at, at the property scale, if you can identify, for instance, yeah. if a pegmatite has intruded into a banded iron formation, you can quite clearly see those contacts geophysically. If your pegmatite has intruded into a para or orthonice, you, know, <laughs> you, you may have very little geophysical contrast between those units. It really depends on where the pegmatite's intruded into. Yeah. So what do you think the future is for lithium exploration and lithium supply in the world? It's interesting. It's going to be really interesting to follow. As, as I you know, started off at the beginning of this conversation, you have things like lithium in brines and you have lithium in the clay deposits. And all of these are much lower grade deposits. So in order for these things to be economic, they have to have large scale production. So you could have large scale production. Does that affect the price of lithium? So I think that the share of the lithium market may decrease for pegmatites, but it's not going to disappear. The pegmatites will, for a long time, still be a key component to the global supply of, of lithium. And because it's such a, a young deposit uh, in terms of scientific understanding, it's like, c can you imagine if we used a porphyry copper model that was based in the 1920s? It's, well, no, we know a lot more about porphyry copper deposits. So lithium pegmatites is really scientifically uh, a young 
deposit type that we're just starting to study of them now. And I'm sure with increased scrutiny, our, our understanding is going to improve and our exploration models are going to improve. And right now, to my knowledge, every pegmatite that's currently being exploited was a surficial deposit. There, there are a few exceptions to that, but for the most part, every pegmatite that's being exploited today was, was a known pegmatite at surface before it was exploited. We haven't even started to look at what if it's buried 100 meters deep, right? We haven't found any of those. So all, all of those, we're going to find them. There's, you know, with depth, there's just such a large increase in the potential for lithium deposits to be buried at 50 meters, 100 meters, 200 meters, which is still economic for mining. So all of those pegmatites await to be found. Moving on to Clays, the large Thacker Pass deposit in Nevada is now in construction. I had the opportunity to talk to Tom Benson, VP Exploration Lithium Argentina, who has worked on the deposit for several years and brings his extensive volcanological knowledge to help understand the formation of this ore deposits and other lithium deposits as well. Yeah, my name is Tom Benson. I'm the VP of Global Exploration at Lithium Argentina Corporation, a company that used to be Lithium Americas Corporation. Then we spun off Thacker Pass into its own company, which is the clay-hosted deposit in Nevada in the United States. And so in my current role, I lead our global exploration efforts for our projects ex-North America, continue to advise the projects in North America on the exploration side. Okay, awesome. But ex- Exploration isn't your natural background, is it? No, that's correct. So, <laughs> yeah, so I always thought I would be an academic, and I think I found the dream job where I get to balance both being on the exploration side and on the academic side of things. I did my undergrad in geothermal energy. I did a Fulbright in Iceland on geothermal energy, and then I started grad school at Stanford, working with Gail Mahood on volcanology and studying lithium and magmas and in particular at the McDermott caldera on the Oregon-Nevada border and understanding the origin of that deposit. Right. And when that research came out, it got the attention of Lithium Americas Corporation, who then recruited me, hired me as I was applying to you know, postdocs and faculty jobs. And when they hired me, they said that I could still continue to do research and they paid for a lot of it. And we're seeing a lot of that work come out now. When I started what I called the Lithium Lab at Lithium Americas, we work with at least 30 different academics throughout the world, helping to understand the origin of that deposit, as well as brine deposits and, to some extent, pegmatite deposits. And I think the culmination of that work is about to come out. The Society of Economic Geologists were publishing this year a special volume on lithium. Myself, right. Adam Simon from University of Michigan, and Simon Jowett from University of Nevada, Reno, are the editors of this special volume. And wow. a lot of the papers will be on Thacker Pass and clay-hosted deposits. I think there's 30 papers in total, but they'll be on pegmatites. i work on brine deposits in South America as well, as well as contributions from a bunch of different people throughout the globe. So it's exciting that I've been able to keep my finger on the pulse of lithium from an academic standpoint, but also push the envelope on exploration efforts uh, in all types of deposits, volcano sedimentary deposits, brine deposits, as well as pegmatites. Yeah, you're living the dream. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, exciting. So how long have you been with Lithium Americas or Argentina? Joined in 2017. So I guess it's been just over six years in the end of 2017. And the company split in October of last year. Okay. 
So McDermott Caldera is Thacker Pass. Yes. So Thacker Pass is in the southernmost portion of the McDermott Caldera. It's a large mid-Miocene-aged caldera system. It formed on the eruption of the McDermott Tuff about 16.3 million years ago. And during the eruption, it caused the collapse of what's now the McDermott Caldera. It's 40 by 30 kilometers in dimension, approximately. And when that caldera collapsed, it formed a very large caldera lake shortly after the eruption. And that's where the lithium deposit was. Okay. So tell me about that caldera lake and clays. So where do the clays come from and how do the clays form? Because does every caldera lake have clays in it? We can start with that. Yeah, that's a... That's a great question. It's usually the first question in every, at the end of every talk I give. Uh, is, do you look at other calderas in, in Nevada? And yeah, that's the obvious question. So if we back up a little to, you know, there's a lot of terminology out there about how do you classify lithium deposits? And because it's new, we're now converging on a term volcano sedimentary deposits. And that's what this special issue that's coming up will call them, as opposed to the brine deposits and pegmatite or hard rock deposits. And so we call it that because it's more of a mineral systems approach rather than a deposit type. And because there are other types of lithium minerals like yaterite, for example, which forms in the same setting, but it's a different mineral. It's not a clay mineral. If we look at volcano sedimentary systems in general, these are sedimentary type deposits that form in volcanic setting. And most of them, pretty much all of them, with a few exceptions, are not calderas. What's great about calderas is that within the caldera, a lake forms, and so you have sort of the perfect storm. And there are a few examples, like McDermott caldera and at least one in Asia that is also high-grade like McDermott, that form within a caldera, but most form adjacent to rhyolitic or silicic volcanisms, such as other ones in the basin and range, like the rhyolite ridge deposit, the clay stones in Clayton Valley, the Yadarite deposit in Serbia. And so most of these clay deposits, to bring it back to McDermott, the lithium is hosted in a mineral called smectite. These are typically magnesium smectites that form autogenically within the lake. And the grades get up to around three, maybe 4,000 parts per million lithium or ppm, these clay stones. That's how the deposit in the McDermott caldera formed. The smectites there, it's dominantly a smectite deposit throughout the whole caldera. What you had is after the collapse of the McDermott caldera, large lake form throughout the whole caldera. Right. And it was a closed basin with a lot of input of lithium to the system. And so what happened is that you create this very high pH saline system evaporating water, but you created the exact conditions under which these precursor to the clays, a gel-like substance formed at the bottom of the lake and smectites precipitated. And right. because you had a lot of lithium in the water, you're able to precipitate out a magnesium lithium smectite and eventually lithified and formed clay stones throughout the whole caldera. I mean, those clays yeah. <laughs> soak up just about anything. So if it's there, they'll take it into their structure. And when you said high pH, how, how high is high? So that's a great question. You know, we didn't really test that out, but we do have modern analogs to this. If we look at the East African Rift, there are lakes there that are precipitating right now end member of magnesium smectite called Stevensite. Papers by Tosca and Masterson and folks out of the UK discuss this in great detail. They, they've looked at these systems and I think the pH, if I remember correctly, is above eight wow. or so where they've done experimental work to understand how these form. And so it's easier to see these are 
the soup of the lake in a silicic center, you have high rates of evaporation. It's a closed system. You can precipitate. And so that's sort of what we see in other places throughout the basin and range. You have these smectitic plays that are likely precipitated out of the solution. Uh, initially, a lot of people were thinking that these formed either as detrital clays uh, or the predominant theory was a closed hydraulic system diagenesis. It's all based on oil and gas exploration where they've seen these tufts that were altered to smectites during diagenesis. And what, what you find is that these are very close to the surface of the earth. These were not buried tufts that were then altered to clay. Other evidence against Against that at Thacker Pass, especially, is we see claystones and then fresh tuff right next to it. It's a very finely laminated sediments. And so if it was all buried and underwent diagenesis, why would we see some layers that have fresh glass preserved and others that are just pure claystone? So there's a lot of lines of evidence that we've used to come to the conclusion that one of the ore minerals at Thacker Pass which is the smectite, at least smectite was formed at the bottom of the lake under relatively ambient temperatures. Right. Okay. So tectonic setting makes a difference in terms of where you're going to find yes. these, like backing up to the really big mineral systems. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a great point. So this was the one of the foci of my PhD work on this deposit where we analyzed rhyolitic systems or magmas from throughout the world, throughout different types of tectonic settings. And one of the main things that it needs to be is it cannot be a, a wet rhyolite. It has to be a dry system because as soon as you introduce a lot of water to the system, it's a more hydrous magma. The lithium will want to escape out of the magma into a coexisting fluid with the magma, and that's much more easily lost during the life of that magma. And so one of the few minerals that form in rhyolite systems that has a partition coefficient at one or greater than one is biotite. And lithium will partition into biotite in crystal fractionation. But I think more importantly is if you have a lot of fluid, co-magmatic fluid, the lithium will go into that phase rather than a crystal phase and then leave the magma potentially if it's sitting down there for a while. In South America, these are back arc systems. While they are hydrous magmas, during when the cold air is sitting there before, during, after the eruption, you're releasing a lot of this volatile phase to the surface. And in the case of the Snake River Plain and McDermott, these hot dry rhyolites that erupted at well over maybe 800 degrees Celsius or plus, you do have a longer cooling history. So that can happen. But I think maybe in the case of McDermott, and this will be great to test out, is where does the lithium come from? And why is it so enriched at McDermott? We might look to these systems in South America and see, oh, we, we had this long, hot degassing history at McDermott, but we're in a caldera, probably have a lot of hydrothermal fluids that are coming there, coming into the meteoric or groundwater system, adding lithium to the lake and likely contributing to the lithium inventory of the system. Right. So two, two things going on, two processes exactly. effectively. Right. And that you also have, and that sort of ties into the other mineral at McDermott. And what really sets Thacker Pass apart from other volcano sedimentary deposits is that it's two ore deposits in one. So as I mentioned earlier, the whole McDermott caldera contains smectite from the southern rim to the northern rim in Oregon. And on the Oregon side, Jindalee Resources, which is an Australian company that's exploring within the McDermott caldera lake sediments up there, 
They've drilled all the way through the basement and they find smectite throughout the whole system, like said. What depth do you think they're... I think they're a couple hundred meters or so. I forget off the top of my head. Yeah. Uh, there's different levels of erosion throughout the caldera as well because, and this brings me to the point, is up there, they, they have a thick stack preserve. As you go south, you cross the border into Nevada, the elevation gets higher because you hit a resurgent dome within the McDermott caldera, the modern day Montana mountains. And so this resurgent dome happened after the caldera collapse, after we had some sedimentation in the caldera. There may have been some sedimentation in the moat after resurgence, but some new geochronology is coming out on that by Chris Henry, as well as some others that are looking at other non-argon argon systems for geochronology. But this resurgent dome, very minor volcanism happened. So the magma wanted to escape, and then it sort of stalled out. We had some Icelandite eruptions, but minor effusive eruptions. But the main thing that happened was you had, once again, a hydrothermal system that released fluids that are rich in lithium and fluorine. And those fluids rose through the resurgent dome fractures as they rose there as like conduits through which this fluid could rise. And then once it hit the sedimentary section, it could then traverse laterally, primarily along more permeable layers because clay is impermeable, but there we have a lot of fracturing which are over the dome, but also tephra. So what we see is the lateral movement of this hot fluid, which we think was around 200 degrees Celsius or greater, and that caused illitization of smect. And so what we see is the smectite around Thacker Pass and in the southern part of the Montana mountains was converted to illite. And in that process, it stuffed a lot more lithium into the structure of the clay. And so the grade of illite we measured in situ was about 18,000 ppm lithium. So it got really enriched in lithium relative to the smectite. That's decent. So Thacker Pass is still a pretty special place. For a variety of reasons. Yes. Even within the McDermott caldera, we, you don't see illite in, on the Oregon side of the border. And right. then these other global deposits like at Clayton Valley and or Rhyolite Ridge, and they don't get to that level of enrichment because they just form through that the primary process, typically, of sedimentation. Right. So is there another Thacker Pass in the world? I think there is. In the Western U.S., I think we've covered most areas, but I think globally, if you think about the course of history, and I know some places in, in Asia and Balkans that have high lithium grades, I think as we look into this more, we'll probably find other calderas that could have similar history to Thacker Pass, but they could be much older. But I think that there's, at least in the Western U.S., we know where most of the recent, well, say recent, 16 million years ago, calderas are, and we've looked at most of them. And a lot of them could be buried, say, for example, in the Snake River Plain buried by kilometers of basalt. So they could be there at depth. So yeah. So now you're you're looking for the smectite or the alite, and now what are you going to do with it? So the Thacker Pass project is under construction, right? This is being built. We got investment last year from General Motors, which was the largest investment by car company ever in the mining space of $650 million to help build the project. And the process there in a very simple terms, is not using any new technology. It's borrowing from the phosphate industry and then leaching the clay and then using the same exact process when you create a lithium sulfate brine to create your lithium carbonate as you do in brine deposits. So it's no new technology, it's just combining known technologies in a different order. Nothing is reinventing the wheel. 
And so we're very confident that we can just keep building until construction. And then when it's done construction in a few years, we'll be one of the largest lithium operations in the world. Yeah. So are you still excited about everything you're doing? Yes. Yeah. And it's great. I think what we're coming to and doing a lot of research in the pegmatite space and the brine and volcano sedimentary space, and even thinking about geothermal brines and brines in the UK, right, that are associated with these systems, is it all comes back to lithium, basically volatility, for example. It becomes concentrated in these magmatic volatile phases that are driving the crystallization in pegmatites that are separating from magmas and brine deposits. And in the case of McDermott, that is rising through the fractures of the resurgent dome and causing this lithium alteration. And so I think even though the minerals are different, the systems are slightly different, it all comes back to the magma chamber and how lithium wants to escape. And so I think it's really cool to think, I know I'm biased as a volcanologist that everything comes back to volcanoes, but it, it in this case, I think it does. And it, it's just great to be involved in and collaborating with such brilliant people and starting to really understand these different lithium systems and how they form. And I think we can take that knowledge forward, thinking about exploration efforts, whether it be in spodrium bearing pegmatites in Zimbabwe or the Yadar deposit in Serbia or brine deposits in China and the Andes as we do more exploration because we need a lot more lithium everywhere. We need all these projects to come into production to really think about this volatility of lithium as the really driving force in exploration efforts. Many thanks to Becky Paisley, Tom Benson, and Bob Lennon for sharing your knowledge and insights with us in the world of rapidly developing understanding of lithium resources. As always, a big shout out to our listeners. We appreciate you. And thanks again to our season sponsor, Anglo-American. I'm Ann Thompson, your host and producer. Next week, we're back for our final episode of Season 4. Yep, we're hitting the Big 50. SEG is excited to be holding our annual conference in Windhoek, Namibia, September 27th to 30th, 2024. In anticipation, next time, host Hallie Keeble will delve into the geology and diverse mineral deposits of Namibia. All the episodes are available at segweb.org slash podcasts and most other places you get your podcasts. For information on new releases, be sure to follow the SEG social media channels. This episode was produced by your host, with support from our production team, Hallie Keeble, Britt Blumel, Corey Tashbishan, and Maxwell Porter. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Catch you next time.